Good morning, everyone. Good to see you. We're going to begin our seventh lesson in our study of this book, The Israel of God, by O. Palmer Robertson. Uh, this is the second part of our study uh, through chapter four of this book. Um, I love this book. I, I hope that you're enjoying it as well. One thing I wanted to say by way of introduction is that when you study a subject such as this one, asking questions like, who is the Israel of God? Um, it is important to reflect upon the teaching and to really work hard at application. Uh, the application in studies like this isn't always just right there on the surface. You have to think through what is being taught, what the scriptures say about, in this case, our lifestyle as New Covenant believers, our identity as New Covenant believers. And you have to work hard to apply that teaching, to tease out its implications. So, in this case, if it is true that New Covenant believers are called sojourners, and in other places, exiles, then that's going to have implications for how we are to engage politically, for what we are to expect from these common grace governments that we live under today. Uh, It's going to have implications for where we look for examples, uh, for an example of how to engage with the pagan nations around us. I wonder if you know what I mean by that. Um, If it is true that we are sojourners and exiles, then where in the Old Testament should we look for examples of how we are to engage with our pagan neighbors? Does anyone want to give it a shot? Say it again. The The wilderness wanderings, the exodus, that 40-year period of time, that's been a big point that Robertson is making. What else? What other figures give us examples of how we should relate to the pagan nations around us? I wasn't thinking Joshua because he took a sword and conquered. (laughs) Sorry. Huh? Christ himself, that's a good answer. I was thinking about that this past week. How should we engage politically? How should we relate to the pagan world around us? Well, look to Jesus. That would be a good start. He submitted himself to governing authorities that were corrupt and unjust to the point of death on the cross. And he said, put your sword away. My kingdom is not of this world. So Christ would be a really good place to look. In the Old Testament, any ideas? Who were sojourners and exiles in the Old Testament? What major figures? Abraham. Look to Abraham. Who else? There's two big ones that I just love to look at. Daniel. Daniel is huge. Because he, because he was in exile. And he was serving within a pagan administration and doing good there. Praying for the good of that city. There's another figure that I really like. Joseph. That's the other one. You guys get what I'm saying? Like, you have to think through this. If the terminology applied to Christians in the New Covenant era is sojourner in exile, that means something. So, we're not to look to the time of the conquest. We're not to look necessarily to the time of uh, the old Mosaic Covenant after the people of Israel entered into the land where they were shut off from the nations and had enemies all around them, etc., 
This is a different era that we live in, a different epoch, and you can even use the word. It's a different dispensation. I don't like dispensationalism. I don't mind the word dispensation. It's a different covenant that we live under, and it, and it mirrors or matches um, those periods of time where God's people were sojourners and exiles. So we're to look to those figures in the Old Testament, and supremely we're to look to Christ. And I think if we would look to Christ in terms of how He related to the Romans and to the early church, the book of Acts, we'd learn a lot about how we should engage with the pagan world around us. And so that's what I wanted to begin with, just by urging you to just really reflect on this teaching and work hard at application. I, I do think there's a problem in modern Christianity, in this country in particular. We tend to we tend to think in triumphalistic terms. We tend to think that the kingdom of God is somehow manifest in this nation or in the nation of Israel, and it's just a terrible error. And it leads to bad behavior in the public sphere on behalf of Christians, frankly. So, the wilderness theme in the Age of the New Covenant is what we're going to be considering now. We looked at the wilderness theme in the Age of the Old Covenant uh, previously, especially in that uh, time between the Exodus and the Conquest. Uh, the wilderness and messianic expectation in extra-biblical literature is the first uh, section of this, this uh, second half of chapter 4. And it's a really interesting section. I'm not going to spend much time on it, but what Robertson is doing is he's pointing out that there was a lot of expectation um, amongst the, the Jews in Jesus' day that there would be a return uh, to the wilderness. And it pops up in extra-biblical literature uh, this is a reference to writings outside of the New Testament. Scholars do not only study the Scriptures, they also study other things written in this era to understand context. I'm just quoting, I think, something near the very end of that section. The Messianic movements described by Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, the New Testament, the Qumran, and Rabbinic tradition all attest to the intimate connection between wilderness tradition and Messianic expectation. So there were a lot of people expecting the Messiah, and they were also expecting some sort of return to the wilderness, which is what we tried to demonstrate uh, last week as we looked at some of these prophecies. And these prophecies are hard to understand. They're a bit mysterious, but there was clearly a, a, a prophetic tradition that said, you know what, there's going to be something that happens in the wilderness again. And there were many who understood that and looked forward to it. Many people, though perhaps not always the leaders of Israel, expected God's new day of salvation to appear first in the desert. And it did, didn't it? It appeared first in the desert. That's where John the Baptist was ministering. That's where Jesus was first um, anointed as Christ Messiah and ministering. I didn't want to spend much time on that section, as good as it is. I wanted to move on. The next section is the wilderness and messianic expectation of the New Testament. Uh, Robertson says, It would be overstating the case to assert that the New Testament focuses on the theme of the wilderness, yet the wilderness tradition is significant in most of the New Testament. The present treatment will focus on the desert motif or theme as it relates to John the Baptist, Jesus, and the New Testament church. Uh, first, Robertson presents material uh, about John the Baptist, and he shows us that John the Baptist was appear, ministering in the wilderness, Mark 1.3. And this is best understood from the point of, point of view of current messianic expectation. So he's off in the wilderness. He's living an ascetic lifestyle, uh, clothed in rough clothing and eating locusts and wild honey and subsisting off of it. So he's kind of living in exile, as it were. He's living off from uh, the, the center of Israelite 
culture and society. Jesus, there's a lot more said about John the Baptist in this chapter. Read it for yourself, please. Uh, Jesus, Jesus went out to John in the wilderness where he submitted to John's baptism and received the heavenly designation of son. From there he was driven further into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He remained in the desert 40 days, Mark 1, 9-13. This wilderness setting was not merely a geographical detail. It had theological significance for the ministry of Jesus. Nothing is without meaning in the New Testament. Like It's not just, uh, I don't know, it just happened that Jesus ministered in the wilderness and was driven into the wilderness. There's theological significance to all this. This is happening in fulfillment to prophecies previously made that the true Israel of God would be driven out into the wilderness again under the new covenant. Uh, uh, under the new covenant. This significant was, significance was not lost when he left the wilderness and went into Galilee. For the wilderness theme continually recurs in the gospel tradition. The wilderness tradition plays its most obvious role in Jesus' temptation. Robertson says, Forty days and nights may not amount to forty years, but the parallels between Israel's and Christ's temptation in the wilderness cannot be missed. So, he went out and he was tempted for 40 days and was successful. And clearly, this is an allusion to Israel's time of temptation. So, our Messiah goes out into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days and nights. And he is successful. He defeats the evil one there. Several studies have explored the theological significance of the wilderness theme in the designation of Jesus as God's Son led out of Egypt. In His calling of the twelve disciples... In his delivery of the new law in the sermons on the mount, in the Sermon on the Mount, in the feeding of the five thousand, in his transfiguration on the mountain, in the exodus of his death. None of these suggestions may be cast off lightly. The reoccurring of the wilderness tradition in the synoptic gospels cannot be escaped. I think this is Robertson, maybe it's Robertson quoting someone else. I perhaps I forgot to mention that. But I do love this little paragraph here, letter C that I've just read. There's a lot packed into it. And it would be worthwhile for you to um, reflect on this. Notice the wilderness themes um, in Jesus' ministry. They're, they're, they permeate Jesus' ministry. Uh, Jesus is said to be God's son led out of Egypt. Do you remember that when Jesus goes down into Egypt with his parents for a time and then returns back to his hometown? And I believe it's in Matthew's Gospel. I think it's Hosea that's quoted. And Matthew says that this was in fulfillment to what Hosea the prophet said, out of Egypt I have called my son. And you're, and you're sitting here going, wait a minute, I thought for sure Hosea was just talking about the exodus that happened in the days of Moses. But no, Hosea, um, Matthew is telling us that the true fulfillment of these words of the prophet is, is God bringing His Son, the eternal Son incarnate, out of Egypt uh, in, his, in His early days. Um, so do not miss this Exodus theme and this wilderness theme. God's Son was led out of Egypt. When He starts His ministry, He calls 12 disciples. Do you think that number is random? It's not random. It corresponds to the 12 tribes of Israel. So, what we see here is that Christ is establishing a new Israel. Is He not? He's establishing a new Israel under the new covenant. He delivers the, the new law in the Sermon on the Mount. His ethical teachings there, he functions as a kind of new Moses. He's not, he's not overthrowing the moral law and disregarding it, but he is bringing ethical teachings to his disciples to teach them how they are to live in, as citizens of his kingdom. He feeds the 5,000 miraculously, and that should remind us of the giving of the manna in the wilderness. 
And then he is transfigured on the mountain. Uh, And that should remind us of Moses' experience on Mount Sinai. In fact, Moses is there with him, along with Elijah is there as well, uh, symbolizing fulfillment uh, to things that they have said. And so this should remind us of that wilderness time. And then the exodus of his death, he departs and he enters into glory. Um, And that is in fulfillment, in part, uh, to the conquest that Joshua uh, led the people of Israel into. So a wonderful little statement there. And we cannot cast off these themes lightly. We need to pay attention to the wilderness tradition in the Synoptic Gospels. D, the same desert motif plays an important part in the fourth Gospel's presentation of Christ. Here, uh, Robertson quotes T.F. Glasson in Moses in the fourth Gospel. He presents these aspects of John's Gospel, which he sees as depicting Christ as the second Moses. And he mentions things. Here's another uh, little smattering of really nice little phrases that remind us of whole stories. Um, he reminds us of stories such as the serpent in the wilderness and how Jesus claimed to be the serpent in the wilderness, the fulfillment of it, how he would be lifted up and all who look to him will be saved. The serpent in the wilderness, he is the manna and the bread of life. He is the living water. He is the rock. He is the light of the world and the three gifts Christ and the Torah and the shepherd and the lamb indicate, um, indicate the connections he sees with the wilderness theme, uh, beginning with the reference in his prologue to the Shekinah as it tabernacled amongst the Israelites during their wilderness wanderings. That is a reference to John 1, uh, where we, we know the passage, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and um, the Word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled amongst us. So, It's temple or tabernacle language that is being used to refer to the incarnation. Uh, So that all takes us back to, again, the wilderness. Now we move uh, from the life of Christ to the church of the New Testament. Um, The wilderness theme is also found in the New Testament description of the church. The fact that the gospel writers show such an awareness of it in their treatment of the ministry of John the Baptist and Jesus indicate how influential this way of thinking was in the Christian community. Indeed, the church expressed itself, uh, expressed its self-conscious. Hmm, that's not right, is it? Oh, consciousness. Thank you. In terms of the wilderness motif, the clearest examples of. This self-identity are to be found in Acts 7, 1 Corinthians 10, and Hebrews 3-4. through 4. I won't you know, go through all the material that Robertson mentions on these three passages, but uh, perhaps you could just remember Stephen's address in Acts 7. Uh, this is Stephen before he is stoned to death as the first martyr of the church. He preaches the gospel to Jewish kinsmen uh, beautifully, but what does he do? He really gives a sweeping overview of, of the history of redemption and, and preaches Christ in that way. But there are wilderness themes that are peppered throughout. So you can read Acts 7 for yourself later. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10 offers further evidence that the church thought of itself as a wilderness people. The church in Corinth had dared to take the grace of God for granted and so had been abusing its Christian privileges. Paul reminded them that the wilderness generation partook of Christ himself and yet fell on the wilderness The entire reference to the experience of Israel presupposes that the situation of the Christian church is not essentially different from the situation of Israel in the desert. This is a reference to uh, that passage in 1 Corinthians 10 where 
Paul warns uh, the church of partaking in, in an unworthy manner, coming to the table unworthily and with sin and with division. Um, and, and he just he, he exhorts them by pointing to that wilderness period. Look at, how, look at how they partook of Christ typologically, because the manna typified Christ, the water from the rock typified Christ. They partook of Christ typologically, and yet so many of them rebelled and fell in the wilderness. And he's saying, don't be like them. Don't partake of Christ in the Lord's Supper, in baptism. Uh, don't partake of Christ and go on living in sin and rebellion. The Lord will judge His people is really the warning uh, that He issues in that passage. But He uses wilderness themes. Now, uh, we move on to the book of Hebrews, which Robertson really likes to emphasize, and it makes sense. The, the book is so rich um, with these Old Testament themes in general and with wilderness themes in particular. And let me read this long quote, and then we'll move to a conclusion. But more than any other New Testament book, maybe I shouldn't have said we'll move to a conclusion. I think we have a little longer to go. So I don't ever like to tease the kids, you know. Oh, we're almost done. No, we're not. I don't know if you've ever listened to sermons like that. It's like, by way of conclusion, and then, no, we're at the halfway point. Um, but more than any other New Testament book, the epistle to the Hebrews depicts the people of the New Covenant as people of the wilderness. According to the writer of this book, the New Wilderness people have been formed into a covenant community through a New Covenant assembly that may be compared with the covenantal assembly at Mount Sinai in the desert. Even as Moses was the representative head, by the way, Hebrews 12, 18 through 24 talks about that. Even as Moses was the representative head who led Old Covenant Israel through the desert, so Jesus stands as the head of the New Covenant people, leading them into the realization of their heavenly calling, Hebrews 2, 10 through 3, 6. He dwells in the house formed by the people of the New Covenant, just as He dwelt in the tabernacle of the wilderness, Hebrews 3, 1-6. Even as Aaron, the high priest, represented the whole nation of Israel as their mediator, so Jesus, the high priest of the new covenant, represents His covenant people in the heavenly sanctuary, Hebrews 4, 14-5, 7, 1-28. In their current wilderness wanderings, the people of the new covenant live in a situation of tension between danger and deliverance, belief and unbelief, as did the Israel of God as did the Israel, rather, of the Old Covenant during their wilderness wanderings. I slowed down to read that little sentence there because I so appreciate it. In their current wilderness wanderings, we, the people of the New Covenant, live in a situation of tension between danger and deliverance, belief and unbelief, as did the Israel of the Old Covenant during their wilderness wanderings. So this is our... This is our experience. This is our setting. This is not our home. Christ's kingdom is not of this world. It is already here, but not yet in fullness. And so we live with this constant experience of tension. You understand what's meant by that? It's like we, we, we've, we've obtained our salvation. We've obtained the forgiveness of our sins. We have the joy of the Holy Spirit. We have the assurance of our salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So many blessings have been bestowed upon us, but we cannot say that we are home yet. And so there is that sense of tension. And that should really impact the way that we live in this world, to see ourselves according to this, to this picture and theme. Let me find my place again. In this context, the new Israel of God must take care. 
lest they fail to enter into the rest of God, even as Israel failed. Hebrews 1, 11 through 13. During this time of journeying in the wilderness, as they move toward the rest that remains for the people of God, the people of the new covenant must draw near to offer spiritual sacrifices, even as the priests of Israel did during their wilderness wanderings. Even the eschatological expectation of God's new covenant people is developed in accordance with the imagery of Israel's wilderness experience. That phrase, eschatological expectation, is first of all very fun to say, and secondly, it just simply means like our, our, our expectations for the end of time, our expectations for the future. Um, they are developed in accordance with the imagery of Israel's wilderness experience. The rest that remains for the people of God reflects the rest of Canaan, which was the goal of Israel in the wilderness, Hebrews 4.9. Also, the eschatological expectation of perfection may be related to the search for perfection in consecration through the cultic... Does that word bother you, cultic? I think it bothers a lot of moderns. It just means worship. Um, It appears in scholarly literature all the time, cultic. So, let me back up. The eschatological expectation of perfection may be related to the search for perfection in consecration through the cultic practices of Israel in the wilderness. Even the distinctive concept of faith in Hebrews may derive in part from Israel's situation in the desert. Faith is described not so much as belief in an event of the past, as a belief and persevering hope in a promise for the future, Hebrews 11.1. As Israel had to persevere despite the difficulties of desert existence, so the members of the new wilderness community must substantiate the things hoped for by their faith. Can you see why I began the lesson in the way that I did to say it's very important to understand where we are to look in the Old Testament um, to find a picture of our identity. We're not to look to the time of the conquest. We're not to look to the time of um, when Israel possessed the land and was ruled by judges or kings. As wonderful as that period of time was and as important as it was, it doesn't reflect our current experience. But the time of the wilderness wanderings does, and so does the time of the exile and the time of um, sojourning. That's the other word. I was looking for. And so, just as the people of God wandered in the wilderness and they were so grateful for the deliverance that God had worked for them, and yet they longed to be in the land that was promised to them, so too we are sojourners who are very grateful for the deliverance that God has worked for us, and yet we long to be in the land that God has promised to us. And that land is not here on earth in this current era. It is the new heavens and new earth that will be brought into existence at Christ's second coming. Okay, now we will move to this conclusion. The messianic expectations of Jesus' day as represented in biblical and extra-biblical literature point up to the continuing significance of the wilderness theme in Israelite thought. The wilderness experience became a concept of wide eschatological implications. This is kind of an overview of the whole chapter, by the way. God ordained that the eschatological age should experience its dawn in the context of the wilderness and that the people of the new covenant could expect to live out their lives in the wilderness, as did the Israel of God. John the Baptist and Jesus both began their ministries in the wilderness, but even more significant for the present study is the New Testament view that God has ordained that the eschatological people of God remain in the wilderness. In this life, we are going to remain in the wilderness. The Israel of God 
in this age of the new covenant may recognize its salvation as having been accomplished, but it must also live in the eschatological tension of the not yet fulfilled. It is not yet fulfilled. It has not yet been brought to its fullness. Subpoint one, as Israel was delivered from Egypt and had to pass through the desert in order to reach the promised land, so the Christian is delivered by Christ from the bondage of the old age and is on the way to the new age, which in faith is already present. And this is Robertson quoting Mauser, Christ in the Wilderness, page, on page 110 of this book. Letter B, so how should this perspective on the lifestyle of God's people under the new covenant affect the outlook of Israel, of the Israel of God today? So this is now some application. God's people today must accept their redemptive historical situation as something that has been determined by God for their benefit and for the benefit of the world. The kingdom for which they long has not yet come in its fullest final form. For this hope they must wait expectantly. In the meantime, they must learn in the meantime, they must learn the lessons taught by the experience of their forefathers so that they will not fall into the same sins. They must accept with joy the appointments of a Lord who continues to be patient with the world of rebellious unbelievers. They must not set their hopes on present earthly circumstances, but must look forward to the transformation of things that will come with the return of Jesus in His glory and the resurrection of all things. And here is a reference to Acts 3, 19-21. I think that is a wonderful point of application. It fits with what I said at the beginning. We need to reflect on the implications of this, and we need to adopt this identity and this mindset as sojourners and even exiles. C. Once the wilderness lifestyle that has been appointed for the Israel of God in the New Covenant has been recognized, the demise of a misleading triumphalism should quickly follow. For just as God's people under Moses spent 40 years wandering in the desert, so the people of God today must expect a life in the desert until the time of the consummation. In this context, all false expectations that the triumphant kingdom of Christ will be realized in the present age must be set aside. Instead, the people of God must accept with joy the Lord's appointments for the present hour and wait patiently until the coming of the kingdom of glory. So what is this triumphalism that Robertson refers to? I think it's a very good description of a number of errors. You've heard me talk against dispensationalism and pre-tribulational or even post-tribulational pre-millennialism. Um, there, there is a kind of triumphalism embedded within this system and here is what I mean. There, there is this expectation that prior to the consummation of all things in the new heavens and new earth, Christ will rule and reign on this earth triumphantly in a way that is different from our current experience. You perhaps were raised under this idea that when we look to the future, what do we expect? Um, we expect a rapture. Seven years of tribulation, so there's one coming of Christ. Rapture, seven years of tribulation. And then there's a, another coming of Christ, followed by a thousand-year period of time where Christ rules and reigns, and if I could just use the term triumphantly, on earth. 
and then there'll be the consummation after that thousand-year reign. It's unbiblical, and it ought not to be our expectation that God is going to do anything this side of the consummation other than sustain His people as sojourners and exiles. There is another form of triumphalism that I don't talk as much about, uh, but it is more common amongst the Reformed, and it is called post-millennialism. And it takes many different forms, but it is kind of the idea, and it does take different forms, uh, that the kingdom of God will so advance on earth that over time the world and cultures will be Christianized. And so there is really this emphasis upon triumph in the secular realm uh, that I think is, is problematic. Um, nowhere in the New Testament are we told to expect this. Instead, we are, are warned to, to live as sojourners and exiles and to be prepared to suffer for the sake of Christ and His kingdom. His kingdom is not of this world. Does God rule and reign over all things? Is He the sovereign Lord? Yes, of course. But He rules and reigns in different ways in different realms presently. He rules and reigns as the sovereign one, Christ does, um, over all things, the secular kingdoms of this world and the church. But He rules in His church in a very particular way. He is Lord of His church in a special way. And so we should expect this distinction to remain, that there is going to be tension, there's going to be hostility, there will be times of persecution experienced by the people of God. Until when? Until Christ returns once, not two or three times, once to judge, and to make all things new. So when will we experience this triumph? When will we experience this triumph? The answer is at the consummation in the new heavens and new earth. That is where our hope lies. That is what we eagerly await for, the new heavens and new, new earth. Somehow, is that clock slow? Let's see. Somehow I, I, um, I got done early. Any questions? And, and I suppose it could be about this lesson or, or something else that comes to your mind. I can't guarantee I'll have an answer for it, but any questions? <laughs> oh, brother. good question, and Chad isn't asking me that question out of, the, out of the blue. We had a text message exchange earlier this week. I assume it's okay for me to say that, brother. But I didn't even read the news article, but evidently there was a, a, a statue, a, a satanic statue set up in a, in a city hall somewhere in Iowa, and the capital and, and, a, and a Christian went in with zeal and, and tore it down. And, and you were asking me a good question. Is that appropriate, or what would my view as a pastor be on that? Would, would that man be rebuked if he were a member of this congregation? And those are good questions. And the answer is yes, that man would be rebuked as a member of this congregation. We should crush Satanism. How? Yeah. With weapons not of this world. With spiritual weapons. Uh, we sh Christians should crush Satanism uh, with, with the Word of God and in prayer. Um. Now, if 
such an idol was set up in a church where you remember, I would expect um, members of the church to be proactive, respectful, of course. Uh, <laughs> Statue of Satan, I don't, you know, there would be people pretty upset about that. But something more minor, let's say, some, some more uh, subtle error. Um, yes, I think Christians are to be very much zealous for preserving the worship of God within the church. But when it comes to the pagan world around us, I think, again, we are to look to the era of Abraham. Abraham was not on a mission as he sojourned to go and to knock down all of the pagan idols of that land that he was journeying in. And then we could look to Daniel and to Joseph also. Daniel served in a pagan administration. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as well come to mind. Um, They were faithful to the Lord. They refused to bow down to idols. They refused to to abandon their, their worship of God. But they were not on a mission to to tear down these idols because they were during that period of time um, in exile. And the same could be said of Joseph. And as we look at our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, I, I don't know how this is not clear. As we look at our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and as we look at the early church, they, they lived in the midst of a pagan environment. There was the worship of emperors and there was idolatry everywhere present, yet there's not a hint given that Christ warred against this. He was not in, in the business of transforming Roman society. He was in the business of establishing His kingdom, which is not of this world. And when you read the book of Acts and the epistles, the Christians are called to suffer and to submit to governing authorities and, and to be true to their God and to worship Him sincerely. There's not a hint of them warring against the culture. And then you come to the days of Constantine, where church and state are all of a sudden wed together. And I am glad for those Christians who had the persecution removed from them. That must have been very nice. Um, But I think it introduced an awful lot of corruption into the church. A lot of corruption was introduced when church and state were wed together and when Christians were given that privileged place within society. Uh, I recorded a podcast recently with Dr. Jason Montgomery, Um, We're putting together a series on that theology in particular podcast on the patristic era, slowly. We're releasing one every couple of months. And just recently we recorded one um, on the patristic era, and I believe the title is From Persecution to Privilege. And we end up talking about that great transition from the church being a persecuted minority to to being given a place of great strength and privilege within society. You should listen to that, I think. That came to mind as well. Chad, did I answer that properly, you know, sufficiently? Okay. Yeah, this is what I mean. This stuff here, um, covenant theology, our view on Israel, um, two-kingdom theology, stuff I've taught you over and over again, it, it just it needs to be understood, but it needs to also be meditated upon and applied. And there are applications for this. Barb? Yeah, um, he, or, he or she needs to um, refuse at, or find a way to work around that. Yeah, I think a, a teacher needs, and there is room for creativity there, you know, to find a way around it and to give an opportunity for the truth to shine through. These situations are complex, but we, we cannot 
ultimately compromise as Christians, and we need to be willing to suffer. And you, you mentioned teachers, but it's like, that's true in every profession. You know, there are some professions where employees are being asked to steal or to manipulate, you know, and on and on and on you go. Every, every profession has these particular temptations embedded, embedded within them, and, and Christians are to be Christians in their places of employment. Yeah, right? What this man did in Iowa was in Iowa, right? Mm-hmm. It sounds like what a Muslim would do because theirs is an honor religion. If their God is dishonored, then they come back hard with the sword, and that's how they do it. Yeah. Unlike us, we but it is because of our understanding of the relationship between church and state, um, Christ and culture, and Islam, things are very tightly wedded together. Yeah. Chad? Yes. Yes. So, as we've learned about God's law, the moral law, and as they are summarized, as the moral law is summarized in the Ten Commandments, we have learned that there are two tables to this law. The first four commandments have to do uh, with the worship of God, and the second six have to do with our duty towards our fellow man. And I think that observation is helpful in sorting all of this out, um, so that. In the church, we are to be concerned, of course, with the obedient of, with obedience to um, all ten of the commandments. Um, but when it comes to our expectations for our neighbors and what we think should be considered criminal and punished with the sword, we should not, under this new covenant era, expect civil magistrates to punish violations of the first table of the law, the first four of the ten commandments. So. Uh, should murderers be punished with the sword? And I use the sword there, some, in this case, uh, literally, uh, but also kind of metaphorically. Should, should the state use its power to punish uh, murderers and thieves? Um, yes, obviously. That second table commandment stuff. Uh, but should the state uh, use its sword to punish those who violate the Sabbath day? No. And there has been confusion about that over time. Um, it's the job of the church to preach the gospel and to exhort men and women to believe upon Christ and to worship God in the way He's prescribed, and we are to use the sword of the Word of God in that endeavor. Austin. Yeah. 
No, thank you for that. Um, all theology does hang together. And if you look back at our archives, you'll see that this perspective has been taught for a while now at this church. Um, I'm thinking of the study we did on eschatology, the sermon series through the book of Revelation, the study we did on amillennialism. Do you remember uh, the book we went through, Politics After Christendom, by David Van Drunen? That also uh, agrees um, with all of this. I honestly think the most important study we have had on this subject that would just set you off in the right direction, basically, is that study on covenant theology that we had recently going through Sam Renahan's book, um, The Mystery of Christ. His kingdom and covenant. Um, when you read it, you don't realize it's about all this, but it is about all this. It's one of those things where if you get that right, it, it kind of it's just in general sets you in the right direction, and then there's room to talk about um, more particulars. So there's a lot there, but it all does agree. It all fits together. One thing, one view is going to have implications for another topic. Always. Any other questions? Welcome back for a, a temporary period of time, Austin Emily. It's good to have you here. Yeah. Oh, Scott. Hi, yeah. You didn't spend much time on the actual biblical stuff that we're doing. I found it kind of interesting that, you know, I don't know whether it was the Qumran or the other people that went out to the desert. So they had proper knowledge of Scripture, but misinterpretation. Is that kind of what's going on now with, like, the post-millennialists and, and that, where they have an idea of concept of what's supposed to happen, but then they're misinterpreting it. Because the reason I'm saying that is when I was growing up in the dispensationalist, we worked really hard to bring Christ back. Because we knew Christ was coming back, and these things had to happen before that could happen. Mm -hmm. So they really worked us hard to make sure that we share the gospel, that everybody could hear, so that Christ would come back, we have to do this and that. Is that kind of the Christian nationalism now? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I forgot to mention that term, really popular right now because of the new Speaker of the House, is um, it's kind of in the spotlight Christian nationalism. You know, that's also a form of triumphalism that it, it is just not biblical, so we need to be aware of it. But, but good question, Scott. Uh, just in response to what I would say that, yeah, when I look at post millennialists and pre millennialists, I don't doubt that a lot of them are, are brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, no doubt about it. I just think, yeah, they, their their categories are are off, and the timing of their expectations is off, and, and things like that. You know, that's a complex thing. Concerning these who were awaiting the Messiah in the wilderness before Jesus appeared, I often wonder how many of them became followers of Jesus. How many of them came from these desert communities? I don't. We, we're not really told. It may be that some were or none. Uh, it may be that they were right concerning the expectation of the Messiah, that they thought He was coming soon and that He would appear in the wilderness. They may have got that right, but still missed Jesus somehow. Um, a, lot of, okay, a lot of people in, in Jesus' time, they, they did not um, receive Him as Messiah because He was not being the triumphalistic Messiah that they wanted. Don't forget that. That was a key error that so many made. They wanted a triumphalistic Messiah. So maybe some of those who were off in the desert, they were waiting for the Messiah in the desert, but when He came, they were expecting Him to form an army and overthrow the Romans and reestablish Old Covenant um, principles. Yeah. Scott?
are the errors that the Israelites made in the first place. It's, it really just goes back to that. And, and sometimes, in the case of dispensationalists, they want to be um, like Israel. They want to be like, like, like the people of Israel. They, they just kind of have this affinity to be like the people. Um, so they, so their, their, um, uh, their, their views are that way. I think, I think that um, you know, post, post-millennialism, which we, which we are, technically, right? Because we believe that the, True. <laughs> yeah. It's just, what do you think about the millennium? Yeah. And, and, and they get it wrong, too, because, because they're also looking for earthly benefits. They're looking for earthly um, victories mm-hmm. to come. You know, dispensations are looking for all these earthly things to happen. And, and it, that's the problem. It's mm-hmm. the earthliness. We just need to have a heavenliness about our, about our theology, about our eschatology. Yeah. Amen. Our hope needs to be in the right place. We need to have proper expectations. Christian life is going to involve suffering and tension as we sojourn and have paganism all around us. Get used to it. Learn how to live with it. Trust the Lord. Set your hope in Him. Also, and I think we'll get to this, we need to live holy lives, brothers and sisters, as the true Israel of God. We need to pursue holiness, and we do need to proclaim the gospel. I understand that in that dispensational system, there's like a, a lot of pressure put on preaching the gospel, which is good, but maybe for the wrong reasons, like the wrong theology motivating it, but I don't think we should be any less zealous to preach the gospel of the kingdom. We just need to know that that this is a spiritual kingdom, and and the weapons we use are spiritual weapons, and we are adequately equipped to do the work that God has called us to. Thank you for all the good questions, brothers and sisters. I I really do intend to come and to leave time for that. It just doesn't always happen, so I'm glad it happened today. Let's bow for a word of prayer, and then we'll take a short break. Father in heaven, Do help us to live as sojourners and exiles, O Lord. I pray that you would further refine our hearts and minds and help us to live in trustful dependence upon you, O Lord. Uh, For we do confess that it is hard for us to live with this tension that has been mentioned in this study. Lord, give us strong faith. Help us to walk by faith and not by sight. Help us to live holy lives before you and to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. In Christ's name, amen.